Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm here in the woods of Canada with Jim Carrey. Jim, are you there? Do you want to come? Yeah. Yeah, but Jim, why are you living in the woods? You could live anywhere. You've got everything. You can be in a big house with hot tubs for couches. I am willing to lose everything. No, Jim, don't. I'm willing to give it all up. Oh, no, Jim, you can't. You've got too much to offer, and people really love you. People are going to stay in the yard, be the comedian, da-da-da-da, like that. Why why is he trying to do that? They're all trying to do that. What was that noise? Trying to do that. Do that. Jim, you gotta take care of yourself. You going crazy? Are you getting on some kind of religious trip? I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Christian, I'm whatever you want me to be. Uh, uh, You know, it all comes down to the same thing. You're in a loving place or you're in an unloving place. Well, I appreciate you giving such an open and intimate interview today, Jim. You know, what the hell? (laughs) What the hell? You know, whatever. I just want to be myself. If you're with me right now, you cannot be unhappy. It's not possible. It's not possible. Yeah. Just try. Jim, if you could be anywhere right now, where would you be? I want to be here, frankly. You know? I I, I just really want to be here. That's it. Well, that's very sweet and awfully sincere of you. Yeah. It is. I only act in the movies. So, Jim, did you like talking to Gary? No, I I had to get off at a certain point. He kept you on the line and really annoyed you, right? There are many. There are many that I've I've felt that way about, you know? G, 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 take me away. G, 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 take me today. Welcome to episode 17. Yeah, special Canadian episode. We talk to singer-songwriter, artist, and documentarian Kenny Starr. She was supposed to do the podcast when she was here in New York working on the documentary, but she got injured. So this is the very first Skype episode. I think it worked alright. There was a little bit of a delay sometimes kind of threw my rhythm in moments, but I think it worked out a-okay. We talked about some interesting stuff like coming up in the 90s, pre-internet, cell phones, and wandering, goalless. People still do that in their 20s, or does everyone have a startup? What do I know? 
Enjoy the episode with me and Kenny Starr. Oh, that's cool. I have it running into Pro Tools right now. Oh, deadly. (laughs) I love these Canadian terms. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty Canadian. (laughs) They're they're awfully violent for such a peaceful country. (laughs) Like deadly? Deadly. (laughs) Deadly, man. (laughs) Well, I'm glad we're doing this now. I'm sorry that you had to leave uh, the United States so abruptly. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty lame, I would say. How you feeling? Uh, things are things are better. It's an interesting process, like learning about injury recovery and stuff. So, but I feel a lot better. I can walk and everything again. So that's great. Nice. <laughs> yeah. You used another really violent term when you were here. <laughs> Which one? It was something like equally as violent as deadly, Equ- <laughs> equally fatal. <laughs> <laughs> maybe the term i i fucking slayed that yeah maybe that was it (laughs) cool well thanks for uh thanks for doing this yeah it's i i i'm happy to talk to you it was nice to see you as well and happy happy to have the opportunity it was short short and sweet (laughs) yeah what were you doing here? You're working on some sort of documentary, right? Yeah, I was working on a documentary called Play Your Gender. And it's a film that it's now been three years in pre-production with two different teams. So this is the second team and the second like concept of the film. And this one focuses on basically the gender gap in authorship and production in the music industry. And how is that gender in the music industry? How is that gender gap coming along? Is it getting better or worse? It's staying the same, basically. Like it hasn't really changed a lot. Mm-hmm. And since the eighties, and then since the, I mean, things changed a lot in the fifties and sixties with the civil rights movements and stuff. But then it sort of flatlined for a long time. So. There's no growth in production in producers. There's some growth in writing. In female producers. Yeah, so it was interesting to talk to people about, because obviously the idea of what a producer is is quite varied. Yeah. So it was, it's, I don't know how we're going to synthesize all the information, actually, because I, w- I was learning on my toes when I'm working, right? So I learned a lot through people's perceptions that we've interviewed. And so it's going to be an interesting process to try and, I don't know, disseminate the. Yeah. Making a documentary. I mean, do you have an outline first and then you kind of just fill those gaps in? Well, we have like our team is, we have a director named Stephanie Clattenberg and she's also a co-writer and the producer is actively involved on a lot of the creatives, which sometimes they are. And her, that's Sahar Yousefi. Mm-hmm. And then we have a bunch of other people too, like DOPs and editors. And I guess collectively, I don't really know. This is the first feature-length documentary I've ever made. So, I- Yeah, this is a whole new venture for you. I mean, you're a musician. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Like I, I feel like basically like songwriting sometimes... 
like I've been songwriting for a long time, like 20 something years. And songwriting is so succinct that this is a really exciting opportunity for me to try and talk about stuff that I write about in a, with a lot longer, you know what I mean? Like each song is maximum seven minutes of mine. uh, Yeah. And that's even like stairway to heaven territory. Yeah. And well, I've written (laughs) experimental songs that are actually quite long, but, but yeah, that's like most of my songs are short songs. And so I feel like storytelling is hard with the short song. What made you want to uh, at least put a hold on music to do this documentary? Um, well, in general, I just take, if projects are interesting, they start to take precedent in my horizon. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, I, I still have work to do. Like I have an album that I have to deliver for the contract that I'm in with Aporia and I'm excited about that one. And then I also have like a water project that I'm working on with the humanities, the Department of Humanities and the federal government in Canada. A water project? What's that yeah, about? Well, it's, these are both projects that are sort of on hold till I finish this movie, but the water project is, uh, it's kind of hard to explain. It's past the pitch stage, like it's into acceptance for some granting bodies. and Is Canada uh, trying to own the world's water supply? No, we we just want to look at what's going on. Like in Canada, specifically in in the northern parts of Canada, our headwaters uh, are at risk. Actually, in all all over the globe, that's the same conversation. But unfortunately, because of the free trade agreement, we have a lot of water being privatized and bought from up here. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the petrochemical industry is, is also ruining the water supply really fast. So the record is kind of part of that conversation. I can't really talk about it because it's in development. I don't really understand it very well yet, but it's, it's a, it's a project for 2017 that I've got going and I'm really excited about it. And and I read this thing in the States that there's so much pharmaceutical use that 3% of our water supply is full of like Paxil and Prozac and that kind yeah, of stuff. I believe, I believe that I, I believe it would be much higher than that actually. Oh, interesting. Maybe that's just what they tell us. Because urban centers, like, for instance, like the city of Montreal recently, they're at a judicial or um, municipal level, they, their city approved a dump of, I can't remember how many billions of raw sewage into the St. Lawrence River. And they've been, cities have been doing this since colonization and since the cities grew to need you know an industrial application for waste before that obviously waste would have gone into farming plots and then hopefully i guess waste would have been reused properly in cities but now that there's so many people in them they just flush the their shit into (laughs) rivers adjacent can't we just shit in the ground because doesn't that just turn to fertilizer why the ocean i I don't know (laughs) I don't know why we shit in our water. <laughs> All right, let's let's <laughs> let's get back to the documentary, a less okay. shitty topic. <laughs> okay. So you, you never did a documentary before. How, I, I don't really know how you go about that. You, you, do you make an outline, or do you just kind of yes. wing it? You did. No, we 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 had a very extensive outline, and 
you know, treatments that we were working from and curated databases on like different parts of the industry and um, fact sheets and mm-hmm. uh, book, re- reference books and stuff like that. We There was a fair amount of preliminary research done. And then, but then, you know, really, I guess the interviews drive it. Like what the other people say is going to drive it. So now we're going to edit that edit that information and I have no idea how <laughs> labor intensive. That's a lot of footage, right? <laughs> yeah, but th- we shot a lot of city cityscapes and stuff too that'll be used and then there's a black void component to the movie which is an ongoing interactive database in black and white on the internet mm-hmm. supported by other documents that are like GIFs and uh, converse, little conversation snippets and shit like that. So that's the online component. And then I guess we determine while we're working on the movie how much of that will get used for the feature film itself and go from there. <laughs> well, it's interesting because like, anytime I've had an idea for a documentary is always like, I just want to shoot this. I, don't, I didn't really have an idea of where I wanted it to end up. It was more like mm-hmm. a journey or an exploration. And then I thought about it logistically. I'm like, oh, well, that's going to be kind of a mess. Hmm. You know, like you could just film all the stuff and then see where it takes you, which could be cool and fun. That's what it was, yeah. what's inspiring to me. But then it also sounds like a logistical nightmare. Yeah, I, I think that there's, I there there are stories of people who have been able to put like to work st- spontaneously and like in the moment and have their editing not be disrupted by that. Con- continuity mm-hmm. you know yeah. like i know but i i don't we didn't do that we we planned a lot of it out and i don't know we'll see how it goes i'm re- i'm really excited about it because i mean i've been in the music business for a long time and it hasn't really changed i mean i entered the music business when there was a rush of interest in female musicians period right. And that was the, you know, mid to late 90s, that whole five-year period from whatever, 1995 to 1999. And why do you think there was a rush for female musicians? Was it Ani DeFranco? Was there one thing? I don't know. It just became the fad, the trend? There was just a minute in the industry where Book It, like, you know, the Lilith Fair was able to successfully operate for two big years. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then, come on, like, now festivals are, it's almost all dudes, and nobody even blinks an eye. Yeah, it's It's, funny, because it's the same thing in comedy, but I feel like guys want more girls around. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And music, too. I mean, everyone always, guys always complain when they tour, they're just surrounded by guys all the time. It's annoying. Totally. Yeah, I think everybody wants the, I think everybody wants more women around. We, I certainly want more women around. Like, I crave that camaraderie in the music business, especially on stage when you get to events and it's just all these guys you've never met mm-hmm. and techs and bands and everybody like, oh, it's such a gross scene. Like as a woman, it's so gross. It's it's harder to navigate because you're not sure of people's motivations. Kind of. And I, th- and I think also a lot of men are really lonely yeah, I think everyone's lonely. 
Exactly. Men and women both. But if you're a woman in a group, if, if you're the only woman in a room around a lot of lonely guys, it's not a great fit. Oh, and if you're a lonely guy in a room with a lot of guys, it's also pretty horrible. <laughs> I can't even imagine being a guy in a room of lonely guys. <laughs> it's enough to make you lonely. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think everyone's lonely. So I don't, I don't really feel like angry about the way the situation is but I just feel like we probably could all use a bit more female voice in the music we listen to only because women are smart mm -hmm. yeah that's the why is because we all need each other's perspective if we're only listening to songs written by men then we're only hearing that side of the song or that side of life i guess do you have a theory as to why there's a shortage of women well we're social yeah there's lots of theories i mean i just think we're sort of socialized out of being entrepreneurs as women like boys are taught to take chances take risks excel be competitive mm -hmm. and women are taught to take care of people um take care of administration Right. Uh, you know, be the backbone and uh, manage the family. I like that you use the word entrepreneur because I always think an artist is an entrepreneur. I agree. I, I agree more. It's You have to be super flexible it, to keep working as an artist. Yeah, and be self-starter, self-employed. Exactly. You got to know who's got to be hired, when they've got to be hired, how the jobs, like how the job will need to be done. You, you're the boss. Like I'm the boss of everybody in my team, on my team in making music. So that's an entrepreneurial. I consider that entrepreneurial as a woman because, well, even if I was a dude, I would, and running my project, I'd still know it's, you're always just figuring it out. There's no, nobody, you don't get to work and someone says, Hey, Kenny, this is what you have to do to make this record happen. Right. Cause you're, you're a solo like, artist. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking a year, two years, three years in advance to, on how to keep my, run my business and make sure I can do all the work that I want to do. And it's really fun. And I, I would just like to see more women taking those risks. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. It's not, I feel like in the glory days of music and maybe in the late 60s, early yeah. 70s, you could just kind of fuck off and be a fuck up and someone else will take all your money and yeah. throw you on stage. <laughs> but nowadays people are much more savvy and business minded. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Music is big business now. I don't think it was before. It was so few people. If you think about like the sixties, think about how many bands were releasing albums. I don't know the stats on it on the top of my head, but I know the content shift yeah. just in terms of quantity. Yes. People, Dude, they were coming out with albums like even well-known people are coming out with albums like once a year, sometimes twice a year, like yeah. all the bands. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a rush to the finish line now. It's like this constant thing of you just got to keep in front of someone else mm -hmm. in the lineup for visibility. I think it's ugly. I, I, I don't really believe that the, the answer should be in constantly, you know, you're, Con you should be constantly creating content and putting it up online. 
new videos every week, new this, new that, new pictures, hot new pictures, hot new pictures. That whole race to the fucking yeah to the screen is bleh, that shit is gross, man. That that has kind of ruined our the content of music, I think. Yeah, some people say that MTV was the start of the ruining of music because it. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, how'd you yeah. get your start? Mm, I got started in music because I was making records at a time when the music industry was looking to Canada. Like, Alanis Morissette had. Her Jagged Little Pill record mm-hmm. came out. And, you know, she'd already been working in the entertainment industry since she was a you know, early teen, but all eyes were on Canada. Uh-huh. So and I was doing something really interesting. Like I, I actually recently just listened to some of the cassettes that I first made when I started because I got a ghetto blaster and I haven't had one for like fifteen years. Before your uh, first record came out. Yes. Cool. Yes. And the quality was really high and it was a kind of an emotional moment for me because, you know, of course, sometimes I feel like anybody who's in this music business, I just wish it was a little less hard sometimes. And I'm like, you know, maybe if I was just better, like maybe I'm just not good. No, it's so hard to rise above the fray. There's so much, so many people out there. Yeah. You know, I mean, and I, I shouldn't sound ungrateful because I, I do earn a living in music, which is, I'm, you know, I'm happy for that, but I think everybody, we always question our quality sometimes. Anyway, I listened to the cassettes and they were really good. Like that's why I got signed to Mercury Island Def Jam. Like, and I'm proud to say that because it's taken me a long time in this business to just value my worth. It's like, no, actually it was really good stuff. Yeah. I remember your first record tidy was like Mm -hmm. everywhere. Yeah, uh, and I I'm so proud of that. And when I listen to it, I'm like, good good for you, Star. Like you really fucking went balls out. Yeah, you know, uh, it was really fun making that record. I had no preconceptions. Like I had already been working as an artist in street, like with street art and silk screening and uh, etches and sh- etching and shit like that. Mm-hmm. And so I never really thought about music as like a I don't know. I never really thought about it. I just thought about it as art. And should we say so, balls out though? Or what's should, that? We, should we say balls out or should we say tits out? Tits out. <laughs> tits out. I was Are we part of the problem? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, we are. <laughs> it's these little subtle terms that, that uh, yeah. the, the language forms the brain. Yeah. Fuck them anyways, those words. <laughs> well, it's funny because <laughs> balls are so, you know, uh, vulnerable. They're out. They're really sensitive. They're not yeah. very tough. Not at all. Not tough at all. No, my my little nephew actually recently, his parents were, uh, he was upstairs in his room and they could hear him saying, I love my balls. I love <laughs> my balls. I love my balls. <laughs> Well, like these things that kind of just fall out of your body, and you're like, what's yeah. going on here? <laughs> yeah, shit. So you were, you were making these cassettes, and how did uh, yeah. Mercury Island Def Jam, that is a mouthful. 
how did they find you and how did all this happen? They, I don't really know how that part happened. Mm-hmm. I just know that I was straddling the line between street art and music art, like visual art and music art, and they were sort of the same thing to me. Mm-hmm. So by the like I've been crisscrossing the country putting up like stickers and st- selling my stickers and t-shirts to bookstores and that was in the early 90s and I was hitchhiking and also driving in vehicles and just going into bookstores like in San Francisco and New York and down through Vermont and uh Vancouver and Toronto just going in and make and they would give you money like you would go in and bring them a stack and like five shirts and they just buy them off of you at like whatever rate like i would walk out with a couple hundred bucks nice and you're just doing this for fun just kind of wandering yeah, around I was just doing it because i believed in i just i i just believe i don't know i just was interested in graffiti not like as a tagger or, or like to be super hip-hop but just in kind of putting up words basically mm-hmm and then, so by the time I started working pr- uh, publicly as a poet, primarily, because most of what I was doing was just spoken word, and then playing a acoustic guitar like bass. Uh-huh, right. Just riffs yeah. and stuff. Uh-huh, just riffs. And that is why, that is why I w- was able to get a record deal, because I was doing something really interesting and captivating, like, and and it and I knew from the very first time that there was something going down. So how how did this happen? Was there a big fat guy with a cigar that just no kinda... the what ha- no what happened was I was my friend Lori Barr used to live in New York City, mm-hmm. and I used to come and stay with her. Uh, she was going to Parsons studying interior design. So I would come and stay with her, and she took me to a poetry night in New York, in the in the village. I can't remember what street it was on or what the name of the club was, but it was a, it was like a Black Pride night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, race and culture were being talked about and celebrated, and it was cool, and there was good poets there, like really good poets. I was floored, and I had just been... Because Lori's one of my best friends. I grew up with her, so she kind of knows what I'm into as a poet. So I had just been rapping for her, and I had never done that, like, publicly. Uh-huh, right. Yeah, and she she was like, dude, you're fucking really good. And, and had, had you performed at that point publicly? I had performed with a band about probably five times. Mm-hmm. and Because I was writing songs on a guitar, and then I was rapping, and then I was kind of using a guitar to back myself up for raps. Right. Yeah, so anyway, she was like, you're really good. Because she had been living in New York for like five years and was around a lot of poetry and, and rap, like the Caribbean world there. Cool. So, yeah, so anyway, at this poetry night, she they they the, somebody who was hosting said, hey, is, we are, the mic is opening up, and my friend volunteered me. <laughs> That's how it started. Nice. That's a really fun game to play with your friends. Just go to a karaoke <laughs> bar and sign your friends up and don't tell them what song <laughs> they have to do. <laughs> I signed my kind of like uh, machismo friend to sing Candle in the Wind. He was horrified. <laughs> It's cool that you're, it seems like you were just kind of wandering around in your, what were your early 20s, late teens? 
I was actually in my, yeah, it was from when I was 21 to 27 that I was, like, I finished university when I was 21, mm-hmm. and and then, yeah, I was just kind of being a hippie and, like, exploring the idea of, well, I was just, I was into putting up street art, actually, and so I was moving a lot between cities. That's so cool, because I feel like this generation that they're calling the millennials, they're kind of, like all starting companies and that's how they're spending their 20s is doing startups yes so true it's so strange to me that to lose that wonder and wandering and yeah the the kind of nomadic thing i was really privileged because i was around a lot of kids like i knew one girl from whitehorse she was raised by hippies they didn't even have tv till she was 17 what's whitehorse Whitehorse is one of the northern cities in Canada. Okay, cool. Yeah. And so she, that was very influential. And my some of my parents' friends were very influential, too. Like, when I was little and I saw them live, like, they had friends who were architects and weavers. And th- that family, who was the Fullertons, they moved and they built a solar home in the side of the hill at the top of a hill. So the back of it was grass. And the front of it was glass and so mirrors. Cool. Yeah, and I so they built into the earth essentially, and they had like goats, and we rode horses and shit like that. And I was so I was kind of, I guess probably I admi- admired people who lived in different ways when I was a kid because yeah. I just grew up in the city with like a mom and a dad and went to school. It wasn't like that interesting, except for my dad is a very interesting man and so is my mom but yeah by the time I got out of university I was like I just want to wander and I knew I needed some money and shit was cheap back then we didn't have cell phones and stuff like that and we all lived in like communally and some of us took care of squats like we had a one squat cabin that we managed up in Souk on the river which is an area in Canada and it was an a-frame cabin that was really well cared for by a group of traveling like nomadic artists and so cool it's it really does sound like a different time it was a different time for sure there was no cameras anywhere you know what i mean like there were no no picnic benches around lakes a lot of lakes had nothing around them you could just go and park a van and set up we used to set up like find back roads and set up and stay like by rivers for weeks at a time and send people into the city to get, like, onions and lemons. Just living in the moment. Yeah. I mean, kids now growing up, like, from, I don't know, 8 or 10 years old, they have cell phones. So, they're mm-hmm. they're never just out. You know, they're always on call. They have to text their parents all yeah, the time. Yeah, that is, I don't know. It's going to be a... I kind of get scared of that. <laughs> yeah, it kind of does make you a little more, like, uh, you know, less... Well, definitely further from nature. I feel like hippies get such a bad rep. Yes. Oh, they're hippie. But you're not really a hippie. You're just like clo- living closer to nature and yep. uh, a little more freedom of the mind. Yeah, and lots of people have lived. Like, I understand like North Am- the North American hippie is kind of iconic. So mm-hmm. when someone likes to live in the outdoors, it's considered a hippie lifestyle. But actually, Native people have lived like that for a long time. And farming communities of all over the world live like that right thing you know is, what I mean? yeah absolutely i mean now you say hippies and it's, people think of you know dirty people trying to 
grub your money and sleep on your yeah. couch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dirty people. <laughs> Get off my yard. <laughs> yeah, it's too bad. I kind of, I wonder what's going to happen to us with all this technology. It's just taking us further away from nature. You know what? We're just going to get weaker and weaker. And our and a lot of people won't survive. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This has been Kenny Stein. <laughs> you think we, like weaker um like physically? Yes. Uh-huh. Our our immune systems will become so compromised, I think, that people will die. I mean, people would die anyways, but our the food quality is so vastly reduced from agricultural practices and like monoculture practices mm-hmm. and genetically modified seeds that people are just going to get sicker and sicker and sicker. Yeah, I mean, before we get back to your career trajectory, you're living pretty rurally right now? Yes. Are you gardening and... No, I don't really have time for that. I want to learn gardening, but I don't have the time or focus for it, and I'm not very good at it. I tried to do it when I was living upstate, and it is so much easier to just go to the grocery store. (laughs) 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 Well, I know how to collect, like, there's lots of plants that I do collect. Like, I collect sea asparagus, which is... uh, it's a it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a little thin asparagus type plant that grows in estuaries that are where fresh water meets salt water, and it's amazing. And it grows right down the hill from us. And we collected tons and ate it tons this year. So cool. Yeah, I collect that, and I collect horsetail, and I collect mushrooms. Like I know I only collect two types of mushrooms because I only know them. Mm-hmm. But I make uh, which is. Uh, turkey tails and also Ganoderma conchs. And you can eat these and they won't turn you into a unicorn or anything? Well, actually, I also... No, they don't. There's <laughs> That's one, too bad. <laughs> one other one, I can't remember the name of it, but I know how to spot it, but I don't really collect a lot of mushrooms because they... Like, lots of mushrooms, even people who know mushrooms so well, they're like, I think it's a so-and-so, right. but it might be a so-and-so. And I'm like, what's the difference? And it's like, well, one is great, doesn't taste very good, and the other one will, like, paralyze you. <laughs> you're like, okay, well, if you're a specialist and you don't know. <laughs> you're like, I'll just have rice and beans then. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm going to go get a steak now. See ya. <laughs> so, all right, so you're in New York, and you're, yeah. you're like... Still, kind of a. What you're still kind of wandering. I mean, you don't really yeah, want like I'm coming to New York to get signed or anything. No hell no. I I didn't get signed then. That's just when I realized that I had something because the whole room stopped dead in their tracks. Mm-hmm. And like I, you could hear like it was such a crazy moment. And I opened my eyes like I did one poem, and I felt everything settle. And when I opened my eyes, people were so warm. Uh-huh. Like the love in people's faces. And they were like, come on, girl. They gave me like an applause. And like, I was like, I was like, okay, thanks. Bye. And they're like, no, 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 no. You're doing another piece. And so I threw another poem down and they wouldn't, they made me do another fucking piece like a second encore and then there was a bunch of djembe drummers in the house. And so they started to throw down. Cool. 
Had you, yeah. had you gotten this response before? No, I'd never even d- thrown poetry live before. This was your first performance of it? It was the first time I'd thrown poetry live. I, I was like playing guitar with a couple of friends. We had a band called BK Lounge, like yeah. Biddy's in the BK Lounge. All they do is big that De La Soul song. Cool. And, uh, but yeah, that was, I didn't do poetry in that band because I didn't think it would, I don't know what I, it was just like a, yeah. So that was the first time I threw poetry to a crowd. And it was and a good it, response. And you're like, oh, I got something going on here. Yeah, I just felt like I love poetry so much, and I saw so many poets doing great work that I, and then I, you know, I felt that response from people too, and so I just thought, well, if there's lots of good poetry around, and I love rap music, and I'm good at poetry and rapping, then I should just keep doing this. It's funny, poetry put to music is just a song, really. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but without the instrumentation of guitars and stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So I like I like write I write rock songs too, and I play rock songs. But I just really I I started doing music because I like poetry, and that is the stuff that put me on the map too, like with record labels and and everything. And I think that was probably because of Ani DeFranco's presence in the music industry because she was so rock. <laughs> right. right so she kind of had the eye of the industry was on her too so it, it like it was just a good time like i don't think if i came out as a woman now or i don't know actually it's hard to say but whenever people are starting doing a music career they're always like what should i Kenny star what should i do and i'm always like make sure you're really really good before you start loading stuff up make before you're making it public yeah, yes. because people are encouraged to, they're like, just put it up, just do a video every week, it doesn't matter what it is, and it's like, no, it matters. <laughs> That's interesting, there's definitely two thoughts to that, there's, some people really do think just stay constantly in the uh-huh. social media world, Yep. with not so much focus on content. Yep, yep, it's definitely one way to think about it. It's really annoying, like, uh, you know, if, if I find people posting too much stuff i kind of tune them out yeah i'm on your page where i feel like all right make it good especially for a first impression you only get one chance yeah like if you're just starting out like i think that it's really important to be very well practiced and i try and teach that whenever i get the opportunity i work with kids quite a bit Mm -hmm. and it's the main thing i try and encourage them i'm like i know there's an app like rap attack right and you can just rap into it and it'll pitch correct you and make sure your words are in the right place and on the beat but you also could just try and be a better rapper yeah and how do they take that they some kids just think i'm boring and very adult yeah well it's definitely a time of instant gratification yeah (laughs) i mean i record people and i've definitely seen a change people like oh you could just fix that or just copy that chorus to the next chorus or just can you just move that one thing yes i know i'm like yeah i can yeah I can, but the editing is going to take me 10 minutes. Why don't you just go practice your part and come back? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I do think the editing is going to be just as same time as just redoing it. That's like, the thing. And then it's, editing always takes at least a minute. If not, if sometimes even, you know, run into snags. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden now you're like, oh, I just need to cut this one. Hang on, let me go into MIDI and I'll just 
cut this one little bit and then I'll put it back in there and yeah, become so laborious and like tinkering. Yeah, it's. Oh. I hate that. <laughs> Digital technology could be really. When I first started, like really getting into it, I kind of quantized everything. Yes, me too. And then you listen back, and you're like, "Ugh, this sounds so sterile." Totally. I try and actually not. I try and not copy and paste choruses now too. It's just better. I think so too. Feels better. Yeah, it feels yeah, and it's more fun. Like part of the thing of recording music is that it's super fucking fun. Right. It's right. not about so, getting it done. It's about doing no, it. No, exactly. That's cool that you're still enjoying it. Thanks. The, the process. Yeah, I am. Well, I feel like this we're very very becoming really focused on the end goal a lot as a culture. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. So what happened after this performance? I don't, I think that the next couple of years after that was, I performed poetry again in Vancouver and there was a woman who was an administrator from the uh, film and television background. And mm-hmm. she came up to me and said, do you know that you're really good at what you do? And I said, thank you. And she was, she said, let me help you. Let me help introduce you to people I know. Mm -hmm. And she became my manager for about 13 years. Cool. Did she steal everything you own? No. And, you know, she was such a good manager and such a, uh, an authentic person that when I, when my growth and invisibility or popularity as an artist became such that work was, you know, starting to come to me quite easily. And I consider myself really blessed because I always have work. She stopped commissioning me. Uh Uh-huh. So like, you don't need me anymore. Yeah. She literally was like, you know, you don't, you don't really need me anymore. She's like, I can help you with certain projects, but I can't get you, you know, further ahead in the industry because she's mostly connected in the folk world right? and film and television. And my shit is more, it is folky, but it's more suited to like an indie or like a rap crowd. So, yeah. and she knew that she was like, her main artist is Frazy Ford. Do you know uh, Frazy stuff? I don't. From the Be Good Tanya's. She's incredible. Okay. And yeah. She's folk. The Be like, Good Tanya's covered yeah. a friend of mine's song. Do you know Sean Hayes? No. He has a great song called Thousand, A Thousand Tiny Pieces that they covered. Ooh, it's, sounds nice. Yeah, it's a great song. So how did, did she, is she the one that hooked you up with uh, Island? No, those guys just started coming around. We didn't solicit. Mm-hmm. Those guys, uh, a woman named Denise Shepard, who's a journalist for the Rolling Stone, among other publications, mm-hmm. wrote a kind of just a little buzz paragraph. And that, uh, uh, people just started to talk and then uh, yeah and then I 
Mandy, the woman I just mentioned, she was fielding calls for me and, st and started to act as a manager. And, and then I was just working. I was just making lots of songs, practicing lots. And she made sure that I was playing events. So it was very organic. Was, yeah, it was very, I never, like, it never crossed my mind ever that I wanted to be a musician. Even as it was happening, I was like, I do not know if this is what I want to do. Interesting. Do you think it helped yeah. that you had a manager when they came around? Um, it sort of happened at the same time. Like everybody was coming at the same time. So it, I don't really remember the, I mean, for me, it helped me as a person because I didn't know who to ask about a lot of things. Like, right. And you're just like, a kid at this point. Feels, right? like, being, yeah, I was just, I was just starting in music. Period. Like I didn't grow up playing instruments, right? So I was learning my instruments, and there was a lot of pressure and a lot of attention happening at a very same time. Right, and at this time, this is like uh, this is the mid to late nineties, right? Yes. So yeah. this is a time when before the internet, really. I mean, nowadays yeah. kids have so much access to information that they know exactly what exactly. to do and everything. Yeah, and it was just I had no idea what was going on. Like I didn't. Clive Davis came to Vancouver mm -hmm. to meet me, and you couldn't just Google who's Clive Davis. No, you couldn't, yeah. and I didn't know who he was. And now I know, and I can't believe the audacity that I had. Like I, he made arrangements to come to Vancouver, and he brought like three of his henchmen. Mm -hmm. And did they and carry I, him in like the Pope? Did they just hold him <laughs> no, in the air? No, but I, you know, I really liked him. I thought he was a really nice man. Uh huh. Yeah, and he came and I like made him fit to my schedule. I was like, I'm not available at this time, but I am available at this time. He probably loved that. Yeah, I think so. And he was such a nice, he's such a good guy. And I had a bunch of meetings with him and and I regret not maintaining a, a personal and professional relationship with him because I found him quite quite a nice man, like... He's a, you know, pretty typical New York kind of grandpa type of person. I just found him very East Coast and very... Grounded um, father figure type? Yeah, I liked him a lot. He was really sweet. But he, you know, he said to me, he was like, our our success rate is 100%. Because Arista Records is no fucking joke yeah. at that time. It's, and even, you know, Jive Records and stuff, it's th those companies, they mean business. But he's a legend. Yeah, and he, you know, he just said to me, like, you know, if you want to be a star, I can make you into a star. Like, my success rate is 100%. You know, it was really... And I really liked him, and I really didn't want to have to do all of the star things and so I said no you said no yeah what was it that he said that what was what was what aspects of it did you not want I didn't want the like he one of the things that he showed me was a video of Whitney Houston who was one of his artists and <laughs> she was on stage He's and not she doing was, that now <laughs> yeah and she was sweating like covered in sweat and she was wearing a beautiful red dress she's Whitney fucking Houston she's like so beautiful yeah and he said to me 
he goes, you see that? You see that? You look at, you know, the passion, look at the, you know, beauty and stuff. I have no problems with her sweating. What does he mean by that? That's what I said. I was like, I'm not sure what you mean by that. And he said, you know, I don't have any problems like with her being an artist and like her whole, you know, like her shining and stuff. And even though a lady shouldn't sweat, well, right. but I have no issues with her sweating. Wow. What a nice, this is who she, you know, this is who she is. It was a really weird moment. And I knew what he was saying is that, you know, I guess he considered that unladylike. Right. And that he get considered he was giving her a lot of allowance by not tucking her in. Oh, he's so, saying, I'll give you the freedom to sweat like any man or Mick Jagger would yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty chauvinistic, huh? Kind of. And I mean, I really, I'm around a lot of chauvinistic men. I, I, I understand why men are chauvinists. They're conditioned that way. Like I'm not going to hold that against a man. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and I like that kind of grandfather. It's a different generation. Like my, our grandparents use words we would never use. Right. right? So I knew it was an age thing and that he was genuinely saying like, I think you could be as famous as Whitney Houston and I will let you do whatever it takes. <laughs> it's so interesting that he used Whitney Houston. Cause I just saw the a documentary on her and it's like, wow, what a mess. Yeah. He, he showed me Whitney Houston and Annie Lennox who were both his artists. Well, Annie Lennox seemed to have handled it a little better. Yes. I, and I mean, they were in different musical genres as well as me, but I just knew that, I knew I wouldn't be, I knew I would let him down if I was one of his artists because I knew that my primary goal as an artist was to be able to live in privacy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's my primary objective. And like I've achieved that. I live in the forest in a small house on the back of a mountain where the ocean is, at, at, you know, down the hill. Right. There's some sort of quote like, if money doesn't handle all your problems, fame definitely won't. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but you yeah. did but you did put out an album on Island Def Jam. No, I, I made a record for them and they that was that was when I w that was when it, it was um Mercury. So okay. I was working with Danny Goldberg at that time. Mm -hmm. And the it's right at the late mid nineties where you remember all those in all the labels kind of folded into each other? Yes. Bronfman bought a bunch of like maybe it was BMG and Warners. I can't remember all the details, but, uh, so I had signed with Mercury and then Mercury and Island Def Jam joined. And I was trans, I was like, I stayed as the part of the contingency. So when those labels joined, they dropped, elected to drop a lot of their artists and staff. Uh -huh. And so I was kept cool. and was yeah, and I was really floored. I was like, wow, that's crazy because I'm nobody from Canada, right? And so they kept me, and then I made a record for them, and they sat on it. Uh -huh. And I had a pay or play clause in my contract, which stipulated if they sat on my album for longer than nine months, I think it was, that they had to buy me out. So once that term expired, I 
I got I asked them to buy me out. A pay or play clause. Yeah. That is great. Yeah. yeah. So you got your record back and you got paid. No, I I never got the record back. They owned now I have it back. It's mine now. Mm-hmm. But it took thirteen years. And that was part of the contract? Yeah, that it was theirs. They own the master record, but you can they, still redo the songs? Uh, they own the masters. My master's rights have reverted back to me, too. Nice. Yeah. So did you re-record those songs that were on the record and put them out no. at the time? No. I just moved on I, and just wrote other records. That's the way to do it. Keep it fresh. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, uh, I like writing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I just kept writing. So do you feel like you've always had kind of an aversion to fame? Yeah. Like way before I was doing music, I was already critical of like media society and television and like commodification of ideas. And I was already aware that like the way things work in North America is sort of messed. And the reason I was aware of that is because my, Father was a was a practicing criminal defense lawyer. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I knew a lot about how police operated and how people got or did not get arrested like white boys whose parents were cops would not get busted but native kids would get arrested and jailed. The tricky wheels of justice, yeah. Kind of, yeah. So I was already pretty critical of how everything worked. Yeah, my dad goes into prisons and uh, talks Christian science, his religion, to uh, criminals. Wow. Yeah, and he's got a lot of uh, people there that he talks to that have been there. Uh, huh. wrong, one guy's getting out. He's been wrongfully accused. And you know now with DNA evidence, yes. a lot of yes. people are getting out. Yeah. Can you imagine being in jail for like 15, 20 years and then getting out and them being like, sorry, we realize we're wrong. Whoops. Here's the uh, pen that you came up, came in with. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, you'll nobody will ever hire you because you've been in jail for 20 years. But have a nice life. Yeah. Good luck with that cell phone plan. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Must be so hard. I mean, technology makes it hard enough for people to keep it, up. Exactly. Poor people. <laughs> wow, this is really cool because you, it's, it's, I mean, it's also like you're trying to become a famous singer, but you're like, I don't want to be famous. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, like I, I kind of knew, I mean, I knew that I had to have some rank, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and I knew that from the way people responded, I could see that I was good at what I was doing. So So you wanted to keep playing. Yeah, I wanted to keep working and making art, but I didn't really like how people were recognizing me. It's even worse now with the internet, but even at that time, you know, pe- there would be pictures in magazines or the newspaper. Mm-hmm. So people were s- people still stop me in the street and at airports and stuff like that. N- not a lot, but enough to bother me. Mm-hmm. And even at that time when I was starting out, there was people, people would like cross the street and, you know, I could see them coming at me and they'd be like, just trying to get there. And then they'd be like wanting to talk and it was just disruptive and I try to be nice, but. That's interesting. I had this, someone said something to me recently. I, I said to them, 
Well, you can kind of tell when a celebrity walks in the room by the way they carry themselves. Yeah. And she said, no, I, I could tell when a celebrity walks in the room because everyone starts acting really differently. Yeah. <laughs> and weird. Yeah, totally. And it's it's just uncomfortable for everybody. And I, I, I didn't really like that feeling of... I, I still am not particularly comfortable with it. It makes gives me a stomach ache and stuff. Yeah, it's one of the things I really hated about living in Los Angeles. Yeah. Everyone always, like, looking at me being like, I could see the Rolodex spin. Totally. Who, who is he? Can he help me with my career? What is this? Yeah. Look, looking over everyone's shoulder. So, but that must yeah. have been an internal conflict for you. I mean, you're like, because you want to play your music, you love playing, and you probably... Did you want your music to reach more people? I don't really remember that stuff. Like, my mom, she says that I was really sick. And What does she mean yeah, by like, that? I, well, I knew that I was unwell at that time. and Mentally? Uh, physically. Oh, okay. So, like, I've had a lot of... My body's not strong like other people and it's not uh like a legislated like diagnosed disease but i've never been able to do the things that other people can take for granted physically so i work very hard to keep weight on and build muscle and uh things like that but it's constantly an uphill battle and when i first entered the entertainment industry mm-hmm. that battle got harder why because you felt pressures of body image stuff no because i don't like being around people looking at me so i was very comfortable working behind the scenes making records and practicing with people that i trusted but once i got on stage i was good at it like people liked people like to watch my shows but the physical uh, the physical manifestation of, of stage nerves right. made me very sick. Like my body was, I was very underweight. I had a headache every day for like five years, <laughs> not even joking. Like my, and my mom finally, like it's sort of the first three years. And then I kind of extricated myself from Mercury Island F jam. And I kind of set a bit of a better touring standard for myself mm-hmm. and less shows and things like, which I still advocate for. Like I don't play a lot of shows. I don't enjoy it. Like, and it's too hard on my body. Like our nervous system is all humans have nervous systems that need care, but a person who has a very highly tuned nervous system mm-hmm. It's not all. It's not for everybody to be on stage, and a lot of people have experienced a lot of sickness from being on stage. That people deal with it differently. People medicate. Yeah. Yeah, like alcohol and drugs and stuff. And I just, it just makes me sick. It makes me lose weight. And well, how, mu- how much of it is physical, and how much do you think is mental? I mean, the stress. They're the same thing. They're the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I totally believe in a se- mind-body connection. Yeah, you can't separate them like. The adrenaline that's released through nerves, Mm -hmm. uh, it just, you know, it sends all sorts of hormonal responses through the body. It triggers like the release of endorphins, which cap out and then cap the synapses and the synapses start to not learn how to operate in the brain. 
Yeah. You know, like it's a pretty physi- the physiological response. Like a lot of people love that because they the rush, people talk about the rush on stage. Yeah. The rush of adulation. Mhm. Uh so some bodies respond well to that adrenaline overload, but it makes me sick. Really? I, but doesn't it make you happy? Um Yeah, like there's there's a certain joy in it too. And like once I'm on stage, I'm inside the moment and I love it. Yeah. Like when I'm on stage, I can see people, people settle. Like actually D'Angelo from Fishbone, I toured with him for a long time. And he said, he said, uh, he was like, I got you girl. You're bringing up flowers. You bring up flowers in everybody. Uh huh. And that is like you're what bringing it, people joy. Yeah, and I see it every show I go to. I'm like, this is why I do this. This is why I put myself through the physical stress of being on stage in front of people. It's because people just fucking chill out. Right. And that's a really, I think that's a gift not to be taken for granted. And that's why I continue to work on stage because I know that it's very important work to be able to bring people joy. Yeah. Well, do you get sad or angstful when you haven't been on stage in a while? No, you don't miss it at all. No, (laughs) no, (laughs) I love it. You love not being on stage. Yeah. So you like for days. I'll when, when I have a show, I won't, won't sleep and I'll be sick for like four or five days before I get on stage. Why? Just the anxiety of having to do it. Yeah, just the feeling of on my skin that I know I'm going to be away from the quiet of the forest. Mm-hmm. How yeah. long have you been living so rurally? Uh, it's been, in this location, I've been here for two years. And then before that, for about five years, I was on the water in Lake Huron in Ontario. Okay, because this is and- like, you know... You're you're two totally different worlds of you're you're doing a very public world. Totally. You know, and you're also yeah. living a very private life. And and I really like the internet for that because like I can post I have a very regular feed on like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and um I like to share that share the way I see the world because I know some people really like it and I like communication. I think it's fascinating. And that really works for me because I can be at home and alone and be able to think and practice and work. Yeah. I was going to, when you were telling the story before of not wanting fame and uh, I was like, and turning down Clive Davis, I was thinking when you were saying that the internet is perfect for you. Exactly. (laughs) You can maintain a blue collar living. Exactly. You don't have to deal. Yeah, it's it's really great for that. It's kind of like the great leveler. I love it. And like I make decent cash from songwriting, so I don't need more money. So I can just work on projects and it's awesome. <laughs> in, in the piece of your uh, forest there. Yeah, and it's you know people always say, well, "Why don't don't you want more?" And I'm like, "What? Why would I want more?" Like, what is more? I know. I'm like, do I do I want more money? Do I want more fame? Do I want more visibility? Do I want more cars? Do I want a bigger place? I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, what yeah. do you what what do you want? 
I know. I, I think people really need to spend more time checking themselves and being like, hey, wait, actually, this is what I want. I have what maybe, I want. Yeah, maybe I ha- maybe I already have what I want. Maybe I don't need to go shopping. Maybe I love everything in my closet already. Well, I think a lot of people want more t- more free time. Yes, and that that I understand, but but I don't know. That takes so much risk. Like people get so many people are stuck in jobs that suck all their hours. That's why I'm grateful for what I do too, because I'm like at least where I put my hours brings me money. Mm-hmm. And, and you make and, your own schedule, kind of, pretty much. And I make much. my own schedule, and it's creating product. Like, if I was, because I have a lot of friends who work, like, a day job and then make music after work, and I'm like, I would be way too tired to work a day job and then write and practice. I so, wonder if people, I feel like a lot of people, if they were given all that free time, they wouldn't know what to do with it. Yeah, that's the problem. There's a reason why not very many people are... Uh, interested in entrepreneurial ventures because they don't know how to organize anything or seek new ways or yeah and it it seems very unstable i mean but having a job is could be seen as more unstable because you're relying on someone else to keep you employed that's what i would i thought i would agree with you 100 percent yeah, it's weird because like the holidays are here, and I kind of hate the holidays because everything stops. Me too. Yeah, you you hate them too. No, I I hate I hate them. I hate the holidays. Yeah, because everything stops, and I'm like, I like my life. I don't want it to stop. <laughs> Let's just oh. keep going with the daily things. Totally. <laughs> so the you so the record did come out. Oh no, the record didn't come out. That didn't come out, but since then I've put out... But how was Tidy everywhere? Records. Like, I saw it in record stores in San Francisco. Oh, right? no, Tidy was everywhere, but that's I made that record before I had a record label. Oh, wow. It got yeah. good distribution. Yes. And then I made a record called Mending, which has... I have all the rights to that back, and at some point I'll release that. And then since then I made a record called One... Jeez, Tune Up, Sun Again anything the record that you got back from island def jam it's 13 years old yeah how does it feel listening to it now i haven't listened to that one in a while i just listened to cassettes which were kind of my early audio experimentation with layering like train noises with conversation and and then some other stuff but I I want to listen to that. It, that record's called "Mending" that I made for um, Island Def Jam, and yeah, gotta hear it. A lot of people say it's good because it kind of got some pre-release. Mm-hmm. People write me about it and ask me when I'm going to re-release it, and I'm like, I don't know. Well, I haven't even heard. <laughs> well, it's weird. Cause, I mean, it's interesting because we're constantly evolving as people. So you put out a song and it has words, and you could yeah maybe not relate to it exactly. Like I don't really know if i think it's that good like i think the cassettes that i have access to right now are pretty interesting i might really some of that shit but i don't know mm-hmm. yeah well <laughs> good is subjective exactly but whether use can stand behind it is important exactly i can't see you as the type to put something out that you're not behind no, I, I like to put out quality stuff. Like I write a lot of songs that never ever get heard by other people. Why is that? Because I, I a lot of them aren't good. Right, right. 
So I'm not going to put out stuff that's not good. Well, the more bad stuff you write, the more good stuff you write. It's just yeah, math. exactly. It's just math. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so when is this documentary coming out? We have our deadline for uh, lock to picture is June 1st. So after June 1st, we... Our, our first festival that we're focusing on is TIFF, Toronto International Film Festival. Mm-hmm. And that's our goal. And that's a fairly, it's a difficult goal to achieve, but it's not impossible. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, it's scheduled for fall release, fall 2016. Very cool. And what's the title going to be? It's called Player Gender. And we already have, like, interactive web web ac- web activity and, like, conversations happening online for anyone who's interested play your gender that's cool play your gender yeah good title thanks man yeah thanks yeah i feel it's appropriate because you know that that having to do certain things because you're a certain gender it doesn't just affect women we didn't want to have the name the word women in the title because it's a film about men and women someone recently someone i think it was last night someone said that there's a Actually, like men's movement. Yes. <laughs> Have you heard of this? Yes, it's called. They're called meninists. And what do they want? They they want. They say they want the rights for men back. What rights do we not have? <laughs> That's what most people say. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. I don't want more anymore rights. I'm good. <laughs> I know. Like what I heard that they were like there was a lot of. Uh, they they make a fuss like it's an online community that makes a fuss over the loss of men's rights. Like, for instance, when Mad Max, the last Mad Max movie came out and Charlize Theron was, like, one of the strong female leads and there was other women in the movie, they, this group, the Meninists, they got up in arms and about <laughs> how the movie was emasculating men because there were strong female characters and oh stuff. Oh, my God. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so weird they're probably rallying to get supergirl off the air i just yeah i couldn't believe it i was like really like come on it's not a joke no it's not a joke it's a real thing you can look it up i'm definitely gonna look this up yeah it's so crazy if you see me like their facebook page i promise it's it's just (laughs) out of curiosity (laughs) yeah well, we've we've covered a lot. Um, I'm yeah. sure we've missed a million things. Well, you can't really say everything in one conversation. You've lived such a full life. How are we going to get that in a, <laughs> an hour or so? Yeah, I don't know. Well, thanks for uh, talking to me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on your, your show. Yeah. Are you going to do a lot of weird like sound design jokes on me for when you put this up no no jokes on the guests ever (laughs) okay only the faux interviews at the top okay (laughs) (laughs) i'm not sure yet who you're going to share your episode with we'll see cool like well i'm stoked and i really appreciate it i really wish i had more time to spend in the city when i was there so it's nice to have a little connect with with you there in the city yeah you got to come back now yeah i will Come back all strong. I will. And we'll book you a show so you get weak. (laughs) (laughs) Just make me sick again. (laughs) Kenny, thanks so much. Hey, thanks, Gary.
So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 